my name is Ahmed Ragab. I'm the Richard T. Watson Associate Professor of Science and Religion. Um, and um, it is my honor and pleasure to chair this panel, uh, which is under the title Integrating Islamic Studies Within Religious Studies. Um, I will introduce our distinguished speakers in the order that they will speak, uh, and then we'll have time for uh, Q&A, and uh, hopefully we'll try to end at uh, 4.45 and then um, have other festivities start after that. So um, let me first start with uh, introducing our um, speakers. And uh, Professor Ali Asani is a professor of, um, of the study of, of Islamic studies here at Harvard. He has taught at Harvard since uh, 1983. And he served as the director of the uh, Prince Walid bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard from 2010 to 2016. Uh, he is a specialist of Islam in South Asia, and his research focuses on Shia and Sufi devotional literature in the region. In addition, he studies popular folk forms of Muslim devo devotional life and Muslim communities in the West. Uh, his many publications include Celebrating Muhammad, Images of the Prophet and Muslim devo Devotional Poetry, an Ummah Handbook for an Identity Development Program for North American Muslim Youth, and Ecstasy and Enlightenment, the Ismaili Devotional Literature of South Asia. Um, our second speaker is Professor Diana Eck. She is the Professor of Comparative Religion and Indian Studies, and uh, Frederick Wartham Professor of Law and Psychiatry and Society in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Uh, Professor Eck has, uh, Professor Eck's work focuses on uh, India and America with a dual focus. Her work on India focuses on popular religion, especially temples and places of pilgrimage. Since 1991, she has headed the Pluralism Project, which explores and interprets the religious dimensions of America's new immigrants, the growth of Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Jains, Rostrian communities in the United States. Her many publications include India, a Sacred Geography in 2012, A New Religious America, How a Christian Country Has Become the World's Most Religiously Diverse Nation, and Encountering God, a Spiritual Journey from Bozeman to Banaras. And um, our last speaker is Professor Roy Muttahiri, who is the Garni Professor of History Emeritus and the Garni Research Professor of History at the Department of History here at Harvard. Professor Muttahiri began his teaching career at Princeton in 1970 and um, uh, joined Harvard or came back to Harvard in 1986 uh, as the Professor of Islamic History in the History Department. He served as the director for the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard from 87 to 1990 and founded the Harvard Middle East and Islamic Review. Uh, his many publications include uh, Loyalty and Leadership in an Early Islamic Society in 1980, and his other publications consider such diverse topics as the transmission of, uh, the transmission of learning in Muslim world, the social bonds that connected people in early Islamic Middle East, the theme of wonders in the Thousand and One Nights, and the concept of jihad in early Islamic period. Please join me in welcoming our speakers. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm delighted to be here um, uh, to talk on this uh, celebratory occasion. And uh, I think we already have remarked that uh, Bill is not wearing a tie. Um, and usually it's the other way around. I never wear a tie, but I thought here's an occasion for uh, my mentor, and so I should wear a tie because he's going to be wearing a tie, and now he's not wearing a tie, and I'm wearing a tie. So, so there's your influence right there, Bill. Uh, 
Um, anyways, I am very, um, uh, um, you know, this is a very special occasion for me, and I want to share some thoughts, uh, particularly because when Bill started teaching here at Harvard, he had just finished his PhD and he started teaching here, um, and I started my undergraduate career here. I just came in from Kenya, and I was in the very first class that Bill taught uh, on Islam. And then through the years, uh, of course, he's been a great mentor uh, and a friend uh, and a uh, source of uh, wisdom, advice. Uh, but also, uh, interestingly, I ended at, at one point co-teaching the course uh, that I took with him as an undergraduate with him uh, and got a lot of experience on how to shape a curriculum about Islam um, and so also got sort of on-the-spot training on how to teach about Islam. Um, and so he's had a very formative um, uh, uh, influence in, in, in at least... Uh, you know, not only intellectually, but also in terms of pedagogy and my approaches. Now, um, one aspect of Bill's scholarship that um, uh, you know, that, that really resonated with me, and of course me coming from a Muslim background and trying to teach about Islam and people talking about what is Islam as a religious tradition, like what is it as a faith tradition? Uh, and I was one of the very few Muslims at the time actually studying Islam. And one of the things that resonated with me uh, about Bill's scholarship was his idea of the, the orality of the Quran. And this idea that the Quran was not emerged as an event. It was an experience. Uh, it wasn't a book, like a codified book, and that it was this recitation. And this, the, and the recitation itself, um, later on, of course, as I started studying this, this recitation, of course, was, so you experienced this recitation, but this recitation was in a certain way an attempt uh, uh, well, the recitation was very important in the seventh century because the beauty, the aesthetics of that recitation was very powerful. That is what seemed to have it a great deal of impact in the society of the time, in which um, uh, con you know this this idea that there was a text that could reduce people to tears weeping, you know, all the things you find in the tradition, that this was a very powerful experience. And that, uh, and that experience was embedded in aesthetics, and the, and the beauty was actually a sign of its divine origin, or this is how it was being interpreted by the society of its time. And then this whole notion of uh, uh, trying to figure out, was the, uh, was the Prophet Muhammad a magician? Uh, a wizard, why was, he, what he, why was he, why did what he recited become, uh, have such a great influence and impact on his audience? Um, so that, this idea of aesthetics as really being part of the religious experience and, and that aesthetics and beauty um, became sort of formative in the way I started 
thinking about uh, not only scholarship, my own scholarship, but also how I started teaching about Islam. That how do we capture that aesthetics, that beauty, uh, and trying to, um, uh, you know, create greater awareness in the classroom uh, of this uh, of this dimension. And I think that for me, starting from what I learned from Bill about this aesthetic and experiential, um, made me start thinking about really the Quran as the center of an aesthetic, uh, an aesthetic scape, if you will, um, in which the literary arts, especially poetry, the sound arts, and also the visual arts uh, become fused and become really a way in which Islam was ex uh, becomes a multi-sensory experience, uh, especially in the, from the point of the perspective of the practitioners. Like how do ordinary Muslims actually experience their faith? They don't experience it through works of theology or commentaries on the Quran and so on. They continue to ex ex uh, experience in this, in this multi-sensory um, uh, form, and that um, uh, and that that multi-sensory uh, experience uh, uh, becomes, I think, um, especially when you think about things like poetry, which poetry and its connection with arts of of performance, um, where you find notions of the intellect, spirituality, uh, music, and the art are all intimately connected. Uh, and it's played a really a fundamental role in articulating the meaning of life uh, and in offering a, a sense of history and community. Um, and that it's not surprising that people say that these poetic arts, I'm going to call them, that this poetry that's fused with music and performance is widely regarded as I know in South Asia they call it ruki gaza, the food of the the food for the soul. Um, that is how practitioners started to look at this of this tradition. So this is what defined Islam for them, and this is where I think this intersection between Islamic studies and religious studies coming. Because I started to think about it. I started in comparative study of religion, went into Near Eastern languages and civilization, and got very familiar with the philological and textual approach to Islam, then came back to teach again in the study of religion. And I'm saying, I'm trying to talk about what distinguishes my teaching in the study of religion than, say, if I was in a department of languages and literature. And I realized that one of the, it's like you shift the lenses. Because if you're trying to get what is Islam as a, as, a, as a religious experience and what does it mean for Muslims, this becomes important. Um, and of course, central to shaping this way of thinking about the religious experience uh, was my work with uh, another very important mentor, uh, Anne-Marie Schimmel, uh, who of course was uh, you know, renowned for her, her, her scholarship on, on, uh, on Muslim literatures, but her lens of looking at Islam through the poetic traditions and using poetry as a way of understanding uh, Muslim cultures. And of course, through that poetry, 
I think because that poetry embodies that religious experience, how people understood. And so she would say that this is how she learned about uh, Islam as it is experienced through her engagement with the, with the poetic tradition. So that sort of heightened, so in a way, what I sort of picked up from Bill got heightened by what I picked up from uh, Anne-Marie Schimmel. And so then to start to creating courses uh, in the study of religion that emphasize the aesthetic element, that how do you approach Islam as a lived experience by, by highlighting the aesthetic elements. Um, and in recent years, that approach, like trying to think about Islam as a lived experience, uh, as an aesthetic experience, has become all the more important um, because of the, the rhetoric about Islam. Uh, Islam has come to be seen uh, as primarily an ideology of power, uh, hegemony, uh, uh, and it also made me reflect on how Islam is sometimes uh, uh, portrayed in, in books, in the media, uh, in all kinds of uh, social and cultural spaces, really as an ideology of power. And that when you can get someone like Mike Flynn, Michael Flynn, the, um, you know, who's part of the administration, saying Islam is, is a political ideology, it's not a religion. And when you start finding that those perceptions of Islam, that it is not a religion, it's a political ideology, you realize how serious the problem is in trying to communicate to people in, a, uh, I think as part of the general education, that there is in fact a deep tradition of, of religiosity within Islam, and that when you, when you portray Islam as primarily uh, an ideology of hegemony, control, power, and so on, um, uh, it, it becomes a big barrier to creating understandings of Islam as a religious tradition. And this has meant that while I started teaching about Islam uh, initially, uh, I was very comfortable with using the framework of teaching Islam through what I would say a social-political framework. I would start with Islam and you know, the beginnings, the founding moments, and then talk about the Umayyads and the Abbasids and so on. But then at a certain point, I realized whose Islam was I actually highlighting? It was, you know, it was an Islam of the elites. It was an Islam that was constructed uh, on the basis of imperial power. Uh, and you know, I was trying to look for where are the, you know, where can we get the social histories of how ordinary Muslims were actually understanding their faith. So we highlight the elites, we highlight the, the dynamics of power. Uh, and in a certain way, there are also Muslim understandings of Islam that are embedded in this framework of power. Um, and sort of thinking about what does it mean to teach about Islam in today's context, especially when you're teaching uh, in a liberal arts curriculum. A lot of my teaching takes place with undergraduates in the general education. What is it that I want them to understand about Islam? So increasingly, not only have I emphasized this aesthetic and the, how people experience the faith, 
but also trying to embed it, embed it within the context of the study of religion by approaching uh, a methodology to, um, which I was uh, very fortunate to um, get exposed to here uh, through the work of Diane Moore uh, in the Religious Literacy Program, the Cultural Studies Approach, and how to, to make students literate about the nature of religion and to help them think about religion as complexly constructed, embedded in historical, social, political, but also, but also literary and artistic context. And using that approach has been, for me, um, uh, uh, I think a very powerful way in which I'm talking about Islam, the context of looking at Islam, but looking at Islam uh, through a methodology that can also be applied to other world religions uh, and making uh, sh uh, sure that in a, war in a world that's marked by religious difference, students have a framework and a tool and a toolkit to think about religion in general and how religion has been constructed, but using Islam as an example and showing, illustrating in my courses how this happens so that um, uh, 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 you know, when people encounter rhetoric about Islam or about any religion, they start asking questions like, whose Islam is this? Who, who is this person? What's their agenda? Where are they coming from? Uh, what Islam are they representing? So asking those critical questions, not only then I would say about Islam, but other world religions as well. The one other aspect of it, this idea of, of highlighting this this aesthetic way of thinking about Islam um, is, of course, reinforced also by the fact that um, when I read uh, Muhammad Arkun's work on rethinking Islam, uh, he actually highlighted the fact that uh, in the academy uh, and also in media and social spaces, we have failed to uh, to provide an understanding of Islam as it is by ordinary believers. And he calls that, he calls that uh, how ordinary believers re relate to the transcendent. And he calls that a silent Islam. And he calls it silent because it's been marginalized. Nobody pays attention to it. And he contrasts that with Islam as an ideology and so on. Um, uh, ideology of power and hegemony, which has occupied all the media and social uh, political spaces, but also a lot of space in the academy. And so I've tended to using his idea of a silent Islam. I've now, at least with my students, I talk about loud forms of religion that capture our attention because they are everywhere. And we forget that they are overpowering other notions of religion that are very personal um, and uh, um, can be, can uh, you know also emotive that they contain emotive knowledge. So, um, so one last sort of thing that I I want to mention in there about trying to teach about Islam uh, as a religious tradition uh, using this aesthetic method uh, is of course that having students do experiential learning. So in this course, because I'm talking about aesthetics and understanding a religious tradition to its aesthetics, having students for their projects 
uh, do creative work. Like they can take a concept, an idea uh, that we've discussed in class, and they try to think about, well, how can I convey this, uh, this idea in some creative way? So they can draw, they can paint, they can connect it with a piece of music, they can connect it with anything that they see in their world, and then try to connect that uh, back to the concept that they were trying to express. Uh, and in a certain way, try to see what they think is foreign uh, uh, and comes from another culture, but then realize through the aesthetics that actually there are ways in which they're connecting with things in a very human way. So this, the, the aesthetic experience can be made, actually can be personalized. So that in itself has been a very, um, for me, a, a very interesting experiment in trying to talk about Islam as a religious tradition and trying to get students uh, to, through experiential learning, uh, to be able to incorporate that within their own understandings of, of um, Islam. It's been also very interesting to have students who are both Muslim and non-Muslims, and you have Muslim students in the class who have a totally different view about Islam. It's more ideological. Islam is identity and so on. And uh, even their faith-based notions of Islam are very Islamic, Sharia, Islam. But when they start, when they're exposed to these varieties of ways in which Islam is an aesthetic tradition, it helps them rethink about how they're thinking about Islam. But I think for non-Muslim students, this is a huge revelation that there is actually aesthetic beauty connected with the Islamic tradition. So, so with that, I think I'll, I'll stop. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't prepare a formal paper, but I thought that these were comments that I wanted to share. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Ali. That uh, gives me some comfort, because neither did I pre prepare a formal paper. I, I really could not imagine how to encapsulate into a paper uh, the things that I would like to say about Bill Graham and religious studies. The first might be the astonishment of the Faculty of Divinity to have uh, an Islam scholar appointed their dean uh, a number of years ago. I mean, this, I think, was a first for many, uh, many theological schools or schools that imagine themselves to be uh, essentially in religious studies. Now, if I'm going back, I want to say I first met Bill at the Center for the Study of World Religions in the fall of 1969, the very first time I entered the Center for the Study of World Religions. It was around some table and we were having coffee and whatnot. And it was, um, it, it was a friendship that we began then and has never ceased. It's uh, been a wonderful friendship and uh, one that, uh, in which our sort of academic paths have diverged in some ways and converged in others. And uh, one of the things that was critical of the Center for the Study of World Religions in those days, it was anchored by uh, the directorship of Wilfred Cantwell Smith, to whom both of us are quite indebted. And it was a place where on a weekly basis, every single Wednesday night, there was a colloquium to which all of the graduate students and faculty in the what could be called the history of religions, the comparative study of religion, appeared. This was not for credit. This was not even anything that was coerced. This was simply 
um, the way in which people magnetically came together at, uh, at the center. This was a different time, actually, in which all the academic records of those of us who uh, studied uh, in the history of religion, the comparative study of religion, were really kept across the street as well. So it was, it was a, a, a very compelling time. And that experience of colloquy, of the expectation of common conversation and common interest in the worldwide and interrelated history of religion was something that uh, was indelibly formative. The sense that uh, this, the comparative study is as much a process as it is a product. And that was something that was modeled very much by Wilfred Cantwell Smith in the ways in which he conducted seminars and did his work in which Bill and I were kind of involved in these seminars where he would deconstruct the notions that we bring in a kind of naturalistic way to our vocabulary and religion, whether it's religion itself, he had already published Meaning and End of Religion at that time, or the ongoing work on terms like belief and faith and tradition, transcendence, and of course, scripture. And that sense that these are terms we need to excavate in their wider sense, and uh, n not so much that we don't go on using them, but that we use them in a way that is shaped by, uh, by a, a sense of deconstruction. He, he never actually used those terms. I think he was a deconstructionist before anyone knew exactly what it was. But the whole question of category formation in our field was very, very important. Then, as time went on, um, there developed um, a, a wider spectrum of the study of religion at Harvard that was not simply uh, a committee on higher degrees in the study of religion, but a committee on the study of religion, university-wide, uh, well, faculty of arts and sciences, that would include undergraduate study. And it may seem amazing to people who have uh, come from other liberal arts colleges, but at that point you could not major in religion as an undergraduate at Harvard College. And Bill was hired to join with, uh, with others, and the head of that it was uh, Richard Niebuhr, who was sort of on loan from the Divinity School to the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, along with Bill Graham and eventually me, to begin developing a program in religious studies that would uh, address the, the educational interest and needs of undergraduates. And that was an extraordinary um, period in which uh, the three of us sort of designed uh, what we thought would be a curriculum and courses. And so I want to talk about the first one that we uh, designed. And that was a course, an introduction, a thematic introduction to religion that focused on pilgrimages. And that was for a number of years, Religion 10. And it was uh, a way in which we explored for ourselves and with students a whole range of the ways in which people in different religious traditions have entered on some sort of journey, whether a journey outward, a journey homeward, a journey inward, uh, prototypical journeys, wanderings, uh, flights, going forths, etc., literary journeys, ritual journeys, all too much to begin to tackle. But the three of us 
um, brought different perspectives to it. Bill, um, of course, was the one who would be designated to talk about the great pilgrimage, the Hajj. But on the other hand, he also was a mountaineer. I don't know how many of you know that. So he was very interested in <laughs> sacred mountains and mountains in general, in those places where there is a kind of break in plane in our own lives and that require an ascent or a descent. Um, and he was always going off to climb mountains. He, in fact, he managed to drag some of us along in mountain trips into the White Mountains during those years. Um, eventually, he made it to the mountains of Japan. But that was his sort of contribution, we thought. And mine, well, I had just come back from studying a city, the city of Benares in India. So I was kind of the city person. I was also very interested in Jerusalem, the sense of a sacred center, but one that had been layered through the years with the religiousness of many different traditions and times. And Richard Niebuhr, on the other hand, is a theologian with a kind of artistic sense himself and a very much an inward gaze. And he was interested in nature, in uh, what he called the center out there after Victor Turner, that was also in here, the center within. He wanted to do uh, everything from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress to Walden, uh, that pilgrim who stayed at home rather than went west. Uh, so we developed a really interesting uh, sort of bibliography and had a wonderful uh, run with that course in which Dick Niebuhr would uh, do an introduction to, to the meaning of symbol. We felt students should come to understand some of that. Bill did myth, I did ritual. And if you can imagine, as scholars of religion, it seems impossible to do this in the course of a lecture, a week, etc. But it began with a sophomore tutorial for our small group of sophomores in which there were uh, you know, readings from the wandering Aramean, uh, from Abraham, from the, from the uh, book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the Crusades, Bunyan from Fahian and Xuanzang, the Chinese pilgrims who went off looking for texts uh, to the crossing of the Atlantic and all of the themes that were involved in these. Uh, an impossible task, but one that also drew in the interest of students who were themselves, as Dick Niebuhr often used to say, that this is also part of human nature. To be human is to be a pilgrim, to be on the way somewhere and to begin thinking about where we are on the way to, and what's the difference between a pilgrimage and, for example, a, a tourist trip. So we developed a way of working on this in which we had first-hand accounts of pilgrims as well as interpretive accounts. And so we discovered lots of things that we had students read. We uh, looked into many of the first-hand accounts of pilgrims to Jerusalem. The Book of the Wanderings of Friar Felix Fabry, a German friar who went a couple of times to Jerusalem and, uh, you know, on his second trip really made a point of doing things better than he had on his first trip because he felt he had missed so many things. And he talked about all of the places, the place where the Lord had appeared to Mary Magdalene, the place where, um, where Jesus was taken down from the cross, the place where the true cross was discovered by St. Helena, the place where the bread was baked that was served at the Last Supper. Just an incredible overlay of place-centered um, phenomena that I recognize quite 
prolifically from the work I had done on Krishna pilgrimage in India. Um, then we had uh, Basho's Narrow Road to the Deep North, in which this uh, Japanese pilgrim left home, closed up his house, actually um, sold it, we're told, at one point, and made his way uh, on pilgrimage for, what did he say, um, 3,000 miles, finally brought the journey to the end, and the end of his journeys, this pleased Richard Dick Niebuhr tremendously, were not like monuments. They were the place where the plum blossoms bloom in a particular spring month, or on a leafless bough in the gathering autumn dusk, a single crow. The places where there is the evanescent, there is not the sort of permanent. Um, this brought our sense of poetry into it as well. And there were the pilgrimages to Mecca of uh, first-hand accounts of people like Muhammad Assad and Ahmed Kamal. And perhaps most interesting, the one that we often began with, which was uh, the peyote hunt of the Huichol, Pil of the Huichol Indians in Mexico. Um, a, uh, a trip that is described by the anthropologist Barbara Meyerhoff and by uh, another scholar, Peter First, through a film as well, in which the Indians traveled to their sacred homeland, the ancestors, a place called Virikuta, a pilgrimage which they undertake, so to say, to find our life. They have a guide, a marakame. They go through crossings and gateways, the place where our mothers dwell. They are blindfolded as they start. They are knotted together and hang on to each other on a rope that is knotted until they come to the place where the clouds open and where they can go hunting uh, with bows and arrows for the sacred peyote and ingest it and cross over and have the experience for the first time of seeing. So this was the sort of thing that uh, drew all of us, really. I mean, we were fascinated both with this film and with the texts that explained it and began to grapple with that experience. And there were many students in those early years. We must have had about 50, 60 students in each class who did kind of find their lives in the process of a comparative study of religion. I mean, Ali Asani is certainly one. I think of Michael Como, who now teaches at Columbia in Japanese study. These are people who were in the very first years. Rebecca Gould at Middlebury, who sort of was on the Dick Niebuhr nature track. Lawrence Cohen at Berkeley, who went to India and found his life there. And many more. Uh, the sense that the, the pilgrimage motif allows students both to a certain amount of introspection as well as study. Um, so let me then simply go on to say that there are many ways in which Bill, as a public figure who is an Islam scholar, did a great service, I think, for the study of Islam, not only in religious studies, um, because he moved so seamlessly with those of us who have a wide range of interest in religion, but also um, in the sort of outreach that has been so important that people uh, asked about uh, during these years. He had the sad fate of being 
on the spot here at Harvard when Sam Huntington was putting out his thesis of the class of civilizations. And people had to speak to this, you know, all of these folks here, Ali and Roy, et cetera. And, um, and he had already worked on that world civilization textbook from 1984 on that was really aimed at reaching a much wider audience in, um, in the study of civilization. But he really directed himself toward uh, some, of the, some of the gaps in understanding that were really prevalent. And among them, I have come across a, a particular speech that he gave to try to explain to alumni what this term, well, was it Islam, Islamic fundamentalism we were dealing with, Islamism? And he talks about Islamism. And he talks about, in a very frank way, you don't see too many people doing this, um, that, that this is uh, describing some of these, what people would point to as Islamist or fundamentalist movements, as having a character, at least some of them, that is totally unknown to, uh, to most uh, people. He mentions the tablighi, for example, the, each one reach one, a kind of notion of spreading moralism, but also that all of them have, uh, many of them have a level of activism that we don't associate necessarily with um, sort of political Islam. And he talks about the uh, activism of so-called Islamic movements in providing for the relief of the poor in the wake of the Cairo earthquake in 1992 where the governments, and we can see this in other places are well, as well, are literally hopeless about doing anything. But Islamist groups go in, get shelter for people, bring food and fresh water, uh, did all that the infrastructure of the government does not do. A fact on the ground, Bill says, uh, in a great deal of the Muslim majority wor world that we do not even hear about and I think that it, that's one of the important things uh, to begin to uh, bring to light. I don't know how many of you know Robert Spencer, who was, whose main uh, uh, sort of test for anyone who is going to speak with him is, do you unequivocally condemn Hamas? And you know, many people would say, how can I do this? We know the sort of things that Hamas does in, uh, in the zones in which there is uh, a chaos and destruction. And it does have to do with a unified vision of, of religious life that embraces social and economic and uh, political life. And that uh, the things that are part of the service element of Islamist movements are totally invisible to those who are, um, who are looking at them to some extent from the outside and certainly from the United States. So I think over the years, Bill has had to do a lot in relation to religious studies and uh, the knowledge of religion in the public sphere. And I, for one, was hesitant when he was brought over here as, a, as dean of the Divinity School, but you know, this, is, this has been an important chapter in the life of, uh, of uh, the Divinity School and of the rest of us as well. And so I can go back to the beginnings and cherish those moments when we're brainstorming about courses on pilgrimage. Um, but I did happen to come in at the very end last spring when 
Bill's class on scriptures and classics was having its last meeting in the Thompson Room down in the Barker Center. All the students were there having coffee and breakfast in the morning, and, um, and Bill gave a lecture to sort of sum it up, in which his articulation of the study of religion, what it means for students, what it has meant for him, what it means for the liberal arts university, was simply brilliant. And he has been in the position of having to explain how important the study of religion is for many, many years. And he does it for students. He does it for the wider public. And for this, I, for one, am deeply grateful. Thank you, Bill. I, um, I should say that one of the very many reasons it's an honor to speak today um, is that uh, we're honoring one of the very, very few scholars who have tested the supposed boundaries, and I'm not sure there are real boundaries, between Islamic studies, religious studies, and the social sciences. He has focused on issues such as scripture, which brings uh, us to the heart of a sacralized text, a category far beyond religion, and including such topics as the US Constitution, in my view, <laughs> much, much on our minds as it became, Supreme Court became slightly desacralized in recent history. He has also probed the limits of sacralization of speech in his classic work, his thesis, on the Hadith Qudsi, the sayings of the prophet that purport to be the speech of God. This talk I'm going to give is one of, uh, of some thoughts that I put together 30 years ago and have been updating and have not yet dared publish. <laughs> it's, it's on the sacred and secular in medieval Islamic world, in the medieval Islamic world, and by that I mean before 1500, and with some predominance on Arabic and Persian-speaking areas. At first, the search for any possible analog between sacred and secular in the Islamic realm seems unpromising and even, if we are to believe some authorities, totally wrong-headed. Bernard Lewis, until recently the doyen of English-speaking specialists on the Islamic Middle East, told us in an, in an essay that he wrote in 1984, quote, for a traditional Muslim, that of course is a qualification, what does he mean by a traditional Muslim? <laughs> Church and state are one and the same. They are not separate or separable institutions, and there is no way of cutting through the tangled web of human activities uh, and allocating certain things to religion, others to politics, some to the state and some to a specifically religious authority. Such familiar pairs as lay and ecclesiastical, sacred and profane, spiritual and temporal, and the like have no equivalence in classical Arabic and other Islamic languages since the dichotomy which they express, uh, the dichotomy which they express 
deeply rooted in Christendom, was unknown in Islam until comparatively modern times when its introduction was the result of external influence. The paper will argue that such descriptions of the pre-modern is, uh, Islamic intellectual world is misleading and that in fact the widespread view of Western Islamists that there is a sphere in which, as Bernard Gluis claims, sacred and profane or even sacred and secular are, un, as, are undifferentiated or even undifferentiable corresponds much more to the assertion of contemporary Islamic revivalists than to the great majority of pre-modern Islamic opinion. We all too often forget that the overwhelming majority of Muslims, at least since 1500, I would think, uh, do not live in the Middle East. And the last thing I want, they live east, east of the uh, meridian of Karachi. And the last thing I want to offer you is a reified Islam devoid from historical context, which is what I'm, all my writings have been devoted to. Many of the Islamicists are caught up in Eurocentric considerations that have remained all too common in our field. Only after explaining why the Middle Eastern Islamic societies are what they are, can we ask why they are not the West, or, uh, or at least uh, or what uh, they are not what we believe them to be. Instead, we continually approach these societies with topsy-turvy questions. Why didn't the Islamic Middle East produce an industrial revolution? Why didn't it produce representative government and the like? Now, let me say I'm a very enthusiastic American, and I believe in both the industrial revolution and, and American democracy. But uh, anyway, such questions are not irrelevant and anyone who has spent years explaining, as every Islamicist in the West is compelled to do, that the Quran is not the Bible, a Bible, that Muhammad is not a Christ, and um, and excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm an old clumsy man, uh, and that the ulama or Muslim specialists of religious learning are not priests, will understand the temptation to dwell on explaining why things are not what they are not instead of explaining why they are what they are. Incidentally, the point uh, concerning lack of a priesthood in Islam and any sacraments that might uh, mark such people as priestly in function does largely account for the absence of any formal dis uh, 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 distinction between lay and ecclesiastical in the Islamic set. Although even that's not as absolute. <laughs> but our, since the Iranian revolution, people are defrocked for being false mullahs. That, that never existed in the medieval world. Uh, but are we really faced with a vast, flat, and undifferentiated terrain as seen by specialists such as Bernard Lewis, I think not. To begin with, the etymological word 
for holy, or one of the many phrases, as in the Quranic word Qudus, is a root familiar to many from the Jewish prayer called Kaddish, same holy word. Uh, a, a word from this root is used three times in the Quran to distinguish sacred space, muqaddas, sanctified, from all other early, uh, all earthly space, as when we are told that two different locations in which God spoke to Moses are uh, in the sacred valley, muqaddas, uh, below Mount Sinai. And as when Moses tells his people to enter the, the Holy Land, which is again called Muqaddas, holy. And Jerusalem, in Arabic, to this day is Al-Quds, of course, the holy place. The root associated most strongly in the Quran and throughout the Muslim tradition with sacred space is Haram, uh, a root familiar to Western uh, Westerners because of the term harem for the sacred quarters, private quarters of a house. May, they may be sacred too. <laughs> it is also familiar to Bible scholars in part because of the Hebrew harem, which specialists tell me, and I'm not a Hebraist, has the same semantic express, uh, spectrum as the Arabic haram. It is well to remember that haram is a term for places, things and actions that are separated from common use or contact, either because they are prescribed, as, as in, say, for Muslims eating pork, or because they are separated from common use or contact, as in the case of haram. If we think of haram, uh, usually translated as women's apartments, in the proper sense as the women's apartments that are allowed only to men within prohibited degrees of marriage, we understand the relatedness of sanctification and prohibition in those things that are separated from other things by God's specific injunction. Not only is the connection of haram with sacred space and time amply attested to in the Quran, but they are also amply attested to in the life of Muhammad, who according to the traditional accounts of his life, personally supervised the demarcation of the boundaries of the two haram areas, haramain, in Arabia, one in Mecca and one in Medina. I will not discuss the actual process, uh, the political life of the period I study, the Islamic Middle East in the 4th and 5th centuries of the Islamic era, or 10th and 11th of the Common Era, illustrate a different line along which an analogy of sacred and secular can appear. Almost unanimously, after the death of Muhammad, Muslims accepted that be, there be a single uh, political leader, fateful decision, of course, this is the caliph, Khalifa, uh, successor. And institutions of the caliphate became universal and considered basic for Muslims. Um, whether this med medieval law still extends uh, is a subject of, of course, great dispute even in the contemporary Muslim world. Hence, 
uh, in the fourth and fifth century, uh, we have dozens of divided governments, each asking recognition from a caliph, but, but the caliphs are being reduced to ceremonial figures, uh, in part becoming analogs to the shoguns in Japan. These, they have sacred status, but they are in fact in control of nothing more than their uh, palaces. In this uh, period, we begin to have titles. Uh, the, there is a saying attributed, hadith attributed to the prophet, do not toss around titles, which most early Muslims took as a prohibition against uh, you know, having grandiose titles like the Byzantines and the Persians. <laughs> and early Muslims were very chary about having, but as time went on, everybody wanted a title. One of the first of these people is the Hamdanid ruler of Mosul, who asked the caliph to give him the title Nasir Adawla, which means uh, helper of the Dawla, a word which at that time meant the Abbasid dynasty. Gradually, of course, the word Dawla evolved to mean state, as it does in modern Arabic, or government, maybe one should say government. Eventually, uh, in the 5th or 11th century, the second part of the 5th or 11th century, when the Seljuk rulers dominate the Middle East, the Islamic Middle East, we have a dynasty um, of even tighter control of the caliphs in Baghdad, the sacred caliphs, who Togrul Bey, who took, takes the title Roknadin Wadunya, or Roknadunya Wadin support of religion and the world. To my understanding, this title is a, is indicates the emergence of a new duality, religion and the world. And we have reference to something vaguely similar to sacred and secular, although not corresponding entirely. Uh, I will skip, since I want to <laughs> get for Interestingly, uh, the, uh, well, I'll skip more. The jurists and jurisconsults who had to face the problem of two realms, the world, uh, the world and uh, dunya and religion, squarely uh, did so because they had to tell people when and why the law saw an action uh, as purely a matter of this worldly contact and vital to Dean which meant vital to salvation, of course, and matters that had to pertain and the next world, or things that pertain solely to this world, or things that were a mixture of the two. One central document, <coughs> doctrine of the Muslim jurists uh, is al-asl fil umur al-ibaha. The basic principle in matters is uh, permittedness. That is, when anyone is neither commanded nor forbidden, it is lawful and therefore open to the free exercise of human wishes. Another uh, central uh, tenant was a distinction between personal obligation and communal obligation, but I will skip the discussion of that. 
Another relevant uh, consideration of the jurors is the distinction between God's claims and human claims. In the discussion of this distinction, uh, many themes of this paper are evoked and related to each other. It is important to understand here that the world where claim, haq, hukuq, has come to mean right, as in modern Arabic and Persian and so on, uh, it has not become, uh, it did not unambiguously mean so in, in medieval Islam, as in many contemporary systems, it meant the claim of one person, one person or uh, party over another. Pre-modern Islamic law is indeed in, interested in rights and, uh, as well as claims, but this is a, a different matter. Rulings, hukum, ahkam, as to the classification of actions are more central to the law. Claims are held to be at least of two kinds, divine, hukukullah, and human, hukukannas, or haq adami, or haqqul abd. Prayer, fasting, fixed punishments, hudud, for crimes are examples of God's claim, and so, as such cannot be dropped. Their prosecution is a Muslim's duty. In contrast, debt and theft are examples of human claim in which prosecution can take place only on the demand of the person or person's concern. Many human claims can be transferred by the human concern or even transferred involuntarily as when a creditor's, creditor's claim is inherited. The distinction is very important, not only for the question of what matters, uh, uh, to what matters uh, in prosecution, but also for judicial purposes. An open and still current question in Islamic law is whether a judge can act on his own knowledge in cases before him or must act according to the evidence presented in the court. The majority opinion among Hanafi jurists is that a judge can indeed act according to his knowledge in cases having to do with God's claims. That is, he knows his neighbor uh, is not following God's claims, but, but in cases in which human claims are involved, the judge must act strictly according to the evidence presented in the court. Uh, the rationale is obvious that, uh, and I will not discuss it. Hence, the, according to, <laughs> hence, according to, um, uh, according, uh, according to the same jurists, the judge must defer to the evidence of humans. Uh, human claims are, in fact, the realm of what Islamic thought, as well as Western thought, in, in deference to Aristotelian logic, called the realm of practical reason, al-aql al-amali, uh, as contrasted to speculative or theoretically, nadari. I'll admit some more. Let me try and sum up. Of course there are no divisions in Islamic thought that neatly fit sacred or secular, profane, uh, 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 
sacred and profane, spiritual and temporal, ecclesiastical and lay, or even divine and human. But for most of these distinctions, analogs exist in the Islamic tradition, and not least in those distinctions which have for us an unexpected difference from distinctions made in the Western tradition. What precisely are the distinctions that we find in the Islamic tradition of the Middle East? First, there is sacred space. I talked about Moses' sacred space and so on and so forth. First, there is sacred space. Um, and I'm uh, God, I'm sorry. When, uh, being old, you get blind. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. First, there is uh, a sacred space. Uh, 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 first, there is sacred space and sacred time. Al-ayam al-mutabarika, of course, is a, a phrase from the Quran. Blessed time, that is. Uh, second, of course, uh, there is the consciousness that uh, the divine has granted a profane space uh, and uh, the basic thing in matters is the, for, uh, is, the for, is not being forbidden uh, permission to act as you want. It is an indication indeed that uh, humans uh, have occupied this space uh, for themselves. Of course, things for having to do with blasphemy, sacrilege, profanity, and desecration express a mixture of de uh, reference, of deference to the uh, divine and to ideas of defilement. Interestingly, the two far ends of the spectrum, the truly sacrosanct and the truly taboo, are described by the same term, haram, and represent, I think, neighboring areas of a great circle that gives rulings or classifications for everything available to humans. While purposely avoiding in this paper the names of Durkheim, Otto, and Eliade, the great Western theorists of the sacred, I do think we have in the concept of haram a strong element of what Otto calls the Foskinanes, something of powerful and sometimes frightening attraction, even if we are commanded to avoid it or, pro, uh, or uh, attracted to approach it in a special manner. The non-sacralized space, in both in time and action of the world, are listed to us. Uh, uh, but we have divinely set goals. Um, Shatavi, uh, a great jurist, defines this goal as maslaha, the common wheel, but others define it differently. Our method of operating within this uh, worldly sphere is practical reason. Man, as the uh, lord of the created world, is in effect, yeah, I'm winding up. Okay. <laughs> man, 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 as the lord of the created world, is in effect given a series of moral puzzles to solve by virtue of, of a person's own right to establish or drop those claims in the world. The existence of a separate world of devotion and individual obligation to God allowed for their separate sphere of practical reason to have 
its scope in, in what we might call a semi-secular sphere. Does this mean sacred and secular are, uh, say, are sacred and profane are universal categories? No. The problem of the apparent dualism of God in the world is common to all monotheistic traditions. Um, that is all, I should say, in which there's a personal God. Uh, one partial solution is the words of the very celebrated theologian Karl Rahner, quote, the recognition that springs from faith in the independence and comprehensibility of a secular world to humans, end quote. Such quote attitudes have existed among Muslims as well as Christians, but they are based, of course, on faith. That is faith that God has granted us a secular sphere. And indeed, it is hard to think of a, a, an all-powerful personal God who does not grant space to people. Without the granting of God, it doesn't exist in any, any system in which you have a strong personal God. In the Muslim case, the secular sphere is often shot through with references to the numinous sphere. In fact, Significant areas of the worldly sphere are under exclusivity or partially of obligation to God alone. The sacred or profane is only a part of this worldly life, albeit an extremely large part. The different boundaries of these uh, partly analogous distinctions strengthens my conviction that we have spoken all too carelessly of the disenchantment of the world, that evocative term that Max Weber brought to currency. Without, well, I'm, I'm skipping, I'm too, going on too long. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, um, and I also go on to say that I think Durkheim uh, believed we could not completely remove the sacred from the world as long as we have a sense of community. And then I sense, since to me community is only achieved through sacralization, I acknowledge how proud I am to belong to an intellectual community, that same intellectual community to which Bill Graham belongs. Thank you. That's a nice ending. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, so first I will ask the, uh, our panelists if they have any comments or questions for each other before we open the floor. I, I just want a clarification, because I'm not in your field, but that you said that the truly sacred, the truly taboo, are both represented by that term haram? Correct. Oh. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. It is interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I, I would say there's a kind of circle mm -hmm. uh, in which, I don't know, uh, one-fifth of it is... Um, uh, well, I don't know. Well, what, what about when yeah. you know people will say this is what, what they say this is haram, this is halal? I mean, in terms yeah. of sure, halal is the opposite of haram in a sense of forbidden, like food. Yeah. Uh, but uh, haram in the sense of sacred space uh, mm -hmm. is different. Mm -hmm. uh, that's. I'd like to have also the quotation about do not toss around titles. This would be something very useful for a university. <laughs> have, we, we could have, uh, so let me know where that is. Okay. Because they're tossing them around. I mean, you know. 
I think, I don't know, I'd like to count the number of people. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Other questions or comments? Uh, so, the, what, excuse me. Is Sorry. Is it the same place that uh, Muhammad, the prophet, used to? Um, we, the prophet used to go uh, for meditation in the cave. That's correct. Mm -hmm. It's the same even in 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 the in the desert. Right, right. Cave I, of horror. I heard that Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Joseph Campbell told that uh, Muhammad, the prophet, uh, go with the caravan. Huh? Right, right, uh, right. And and used right. to. Set, uh, separate himself mm. into the second place, the, the, the cave, oh. and do meditation. Yeah. And yeah. that the way it, it happened that uh, he uh, got a Quran, revelation. Quran huh? yeah. come up. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Right. Uh, so I, I just wanna. I wanna. Thank you. I, I wanna give uh, Bill first. If you have comments or. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, uh, to come, it's, it's really, uh, it reminds me hearing these three uh, wonderful colleagues and friends of so many years uh, speak uh, at the end of a, a wonderful day. Um, it strikes me how, particularly given the topic, just how much the study of religion generally and the study of any particular tradition, the Islamic in this case in particular, interpenetrate. Uh, almost um, uh, willy-nilly. And I think one of the things that for me here has been uh, over many decades now has been really quite wonderful is working and teaching. I've talked with all three of these colleagues and several others who have spoken yeah, today. True. True. Uh, we've all taught courses together. And I think that the, uh, the learning back and forth and the, um, and the exploration of concepts in particular, terminology, uh, that we've all engaged in, particularly collectively, um, has given us all, I think, a very real sense, whether we see ourselves as primarily on the, uh, let's say, Islamic specialist side or Buddhist specialist side or whatever, or on the historian of religion side or whatever. Uh, I don't really know which side of that I fall on best. Uh, but whichever side one falls on, I think that the one thing that we've been able to do uh, over the years uh, in colloquy quite often, is never to take terminology uh, for granted, never to assume that it's simple, never to assume uh, that we've locked down something with a, a fancy theory, uh, because all of these are just things to think with. They're all heuristic, as far as I'm concerned, whether it's Durkheim or whoever it may be in the West, or whether it's Muslim uh, theories as well, theological uh, uh, ideas, or for that matter, yeah. Indian or Christian or, or whatever. Uh, I think that's one thing that I have continued to learn largely from my colleagues, and I'm very grateful for that. I'd like also to have the floor just for a second, just to say uh, thanks for uh, for such a wonderful day of panels. Uh, I know that Ahmed, you put this largely together, and I'm extremely grateful for that. And I just want to say that um, I think, uh, None of this probably would have been possible for me, uh, working in the various capacities that I have and with the people that I've worked, um, had it not been particularly for uh, my wife, Barbara, 
uh, who has, through thick and thin, through a lot of really crazy years, when she was also working 70 and 80 hour weeks here uh, for Mother Harvard, uh, that, uh, uh, that we somehow managed to survive all of this. And I think it's only due, I think, to that, uh, that support and stability and love that I've had uh, all these many decades now uh, that I've been able uh, to, you know, to enjoy. Uh, the sort of uh, intellectual life that uh, I think all of you at the front of the room represent for me and everyone who's appeared today represents. So let me just slip that in if I might. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have time for um, a couple more questions or comments. Do courses like the one you described that uh, you and Bill and Dick Niebuhr taught, do they continue uh, in the Committee for the Study of the Religion or uh, you know, is, have things become more professionalized in some ways so that those wonderful exploratory journeys that the three of you launched are less available to students? Can you talk a little bit about what the current landscape is? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, courses sort of come, develop, and uh, fade. Now, the pilgrimage class, as pilgrimages we had, in the plural, that kind of went on for a few years. And then, um, then we decided we should do some other thematic introductions to uh, the study of religion. I taught one on ritual. Um, the ritual in the religious life that had some of the same elements of drawing from several different traditions, usually no more than three, because uh, it becomes a little crazy, um, and, uh, and juxtaposing that with uh, concrete ritual elements of the life cycle and whatnot. Um, then Bill started teaching scriptures and classics, which had scripture as sort of a thematic introduction. And um, there were others as well. I think there was, uh, you know, death in the afterlife, for example. That kind of uh, that kind of course. So, um, and I think there certainly the kinds of courses that Kimberly Patton teaches on various themes of nature and uh, animals and uh, oceans and mountains and trees and whatnot. And women, what? Weeping. What? Weeping. 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 Oh, weeping, yeah. Weeping, important. Yeah, that's another one. So, uh, but the thematic is only really one strand. There are others that, um, that are more uh, sort of historical introductions to some spectrum of religious life. I mean, I do one on uh, India, the religious traditions of India, that makes quite clear that these are braided together in ways that it does not make sense just to yank out the Hindu and say, I'm going to teach a course on Hinduism because they're all, you know, embedded in a culture. And the same, really, with, um, with uh, what has so commonly been called Abrahamic traditions or the religious traditions of China. Um, they're kind of multi-religious courses. And, um, 
and then, you know, there are courses that I think have taken another kind of life. I mean, think of Leila Ahmed's courses on women uh, and memoir in different traditions. Um, but, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, the, the university is always trying to, um, what, to sort of get us to solidify our curriculum. But, you know, our curriculum really depends a lot on the energies and enthusiasms of the faculty, and they change. Um, they're, the one that I've been teaching now for several years is really case studies in American uh, religious pluralism. That is a totally different kind of course. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, yes, I think we, 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 we continue, and that when I t was thinking about this pilgrimage material, I kept thinking, I'd like to go back and teach that again. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions or comments? Sukidi, yes. Uh, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation. Uh, I like uh, I like to ask about the question of the intellectual milieu at that time, because uh, Diana act actually drew our attention to to Wilfred Campbell Smith. To me, he is the influence, influential figure, not only to the formative influence to you, but also to Bill Graham. So uh, I still remember each time I read Graham's work on, especially on the beyond written words, study of Islam, a study of religion, is not study about or study about tech itself, in itself, or about itself, but it has to be studied in relation to particular community, mm -hmm. a particular religious community. <coughs> and I think I think I just want to see the influence of Wilford Kendall Smith in the direction of your study and Bill Graham's study at that time, because Graham seemed to me uh, has uh, so much uh, has you know has been shaped in many ways by by. Uh, Kenwell Smith works on the understanding of the text and community relationship. Uh, tech has to be studied and in relation to the community itself because it is impossible to understand tech in itself, mm -hmm. but rather in relation to the community. And also to Professor Diana Eck. I think, I don't know exactly, but I just wonder if your study of India is part of the of the influence from Kenwell Smith at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is important to me because your formation of scholarly work is part of what Graham, Graham called is not paradigm. Yeah. That, that means as a chain of, of scholarly network between master and mm -hmm. student. Mm -hmm. And also, it's, to me, it's very uh, pleased to know from the first was uh, mm -hmm. people who experienced at that time in my perhaps around 1960 or early 70 maybe. I think that's all. I could say one thing first about the 
text in relation to community, I think both Bill and uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith made quite clear in, in different ways, but uh, the fact that you know, a text isn't sacred in itself, it's sacred for a particular community. A, a scripture is a relationship as much as anything else, it's the relationship one has to it, uh, which does come as a surprise to some students who think that it just landed some from uh, on high or something of the sort. But I think in terms of my own work, um, certainly the issue of vocabulary, the language we bring to, uh, to our work is very much shaped by it's just what has to be if you're studying something through another language. What is the language for the sacred, for example, in India? There isn't, I mean, you would think that India is sort of riven with sacredness everywhere, but there is no particular word at all. Uh, it's somewhere in between pure and auspicious or something like that, and to lift those words or the issue of pilgrimage for. Um, my work, largely, it comes through the language of the sac sacred place. Is that what we'd like to call their tirtas? They're crossing places. They're closer to the Wichol idea of the crossings than they are mm -hmm. uh, to um, a particular notion of a sacred. Uh, so the tirta, the crossing place, the tirtiatra, the pilgrimage, the uh, the yatri, the pilgrim, uh, the one who travels. Uh, I mean, I think the issue of beginning to develop a vocabulary is really significant. I think the the, um, the seminars that we had with Wilfred Cantwell Smith were important. I remember being in one of those seminars on the topic of faith, and our job in, as students in that was to begin to excavate the extent to which that language really came into the particular tradition we were studying, and I did a very extensive study of the term shraddha, uh, which means to place one's heart uh, on something. It's a term that's used throughout the Bhagavad Gita, and, um, and actually is related in many ways uh, to the understanding of credo in the early uh, sort of tradition, of, which also meant to place one's heart on something. It wasn't to have a little set of boxes of things that you believe in your head. Um, but, you know, it is a, an attitude of the heart. And, and, you know, people were approaching this from different standpoints. And the whole notion of a seminar and of language was that we work with different languages. We don't know all the languages. We have people who were, whose expertise was in Arabic or Chinese or other things like that. The, um, the other seminar was the one on his, he called historical interrelations, um, in which he focused on places where that were very much, um, you know, the, where religious traditions as we know them as sort of retrojected an idea of a religion just weren't quite there. And they were, uh, you know, the, uh, ancient Mediterranean in the first couple of centuries and uh, early centuries of Buddhism in China and certainly the, um, the period in which the Sikh community emerged in India and you couldn't say what was really Hindu, what was Muslim, what was Sikh. Uh, there was a sense of the interpenetration of, uh, of ideas and peoples and movements that eventually came to be uh, 
discerned as separate, but really at the time were not. And so to study those sort of muddy places was one of the things that we did. And one of, what's the name of that article he did on the emergence of the uh, Sikh community in India? But it's really, uh, yeah. it's in one of uh, Smith's sort of collections of generative articles. It's so, this crystallization. Crystallization, that's it. Crystallization of uh, this Sikh, Sikh tradition. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we could name various ways in which that discipline of study was very important. I would say the other is that, you know, someone in the early panel mentioned that Bill writes with the kind of fluency that um, a normal person who's not an Islam scholar can read, but then if you read all the footnotes, that's the graduate course. And Wilfred <laughs> did that too, you know, his footnotes were, you know, easily as long as the books. And the first paper that I ever wrote for him was one in which he actually went, this was before Hollis and computers and anything, and he went and looked up all my footnotes oh, because they felt that, you know, this was the thing that would mark one's work. And if your footnotes weren't right, um, you know, uh, this was going to <laughs> be a, a disability in your scholarship. And I was just astonished, really. I no one ever paid attention like that. Yeah. Well, um, with that, I think I will um, bring this part, the open part of our conversation to a close. And please join me in thanking our panel and our speakers throughout the day.